Welcome to Hearing the Pulitzers, a piece-by-piece, episode-by-episode exploration of the winners of the Pulitzer Prize in Music, with hosts Andrew Grenade and David Thurmeyer. So before we bring you the next episode of Hearing the Pulitzers, we wanted to make a small correction. Between the time we recorded this episode and the time we got it mixed and released, George Crumb passed away on February 6th, 2022. Yes, uh, and we we were teasing it. We were very excited because Crumb was going to be our first living composer of the Pulitzer. And now, unfortunately, with his death at the age of 92, uh, which was a, a big deal, a lot of people made uh, great tributes and obituary and uh, obviously a huge figure in American music. I think we're going to have to wait quite a while again for our next living composer in our series here. But uh, we just wanted to mention that before you listen so you don't write us and tell us that George Crumb died because we know. So hope you enjoy the podcast. Welcome to Hearing the Pulitzer's episode 26, where we're traveling back to 1968 and the 23rd winner of the Pulitzer Prize in Music, George Crumb for Echoes of Time and the River. So our first living composer, still still going, so it's exciting for us to finally have reached the point in history where we have living composers to talk about. So Dave, I'm curious about your experiences with George Crumb. Well, I have two stories. You told me you had one story, yes. so you've doubled them well, since last time. I have. It's, the first one's not so much a story as an experience, but when I was an undergrad at the University of Illinois, which was his alma That's mater right. as well, one of them, uh, the Kronos Quartet came and played Black Angels. And I was a composition major, and that was a big deal. Uh, everybody went. It was in the studio theater. The whole place was black. Uh, the walls, everything, and then they, you could see the the glasses with like the wine glasses. Sure, they're shining. In yes, the light. they were shining yeah. the light. It was very theatrical. They were all in black, and it, it made such a big impact. So, Black Angels is always a powerful piece to me. Yeah. Uh, and then the second one was when I was a graduate student. The Society for Music Theory conference was at, at Penn hmm. uh, one year, and they had George Rockberg and George Crumb give talks. Well, they were well. They were just kind of the guests of honor, and uh, Rockberg was very good. He was very interesting. He had a lot to say. George Crumb didn't have much to say. Uh, someone stood up and said, "Now in Black Angels, I think you use 016 trichords and blah blah blah." And he just said, well, <laughs> "That's such a theory conference." I know, totally. Yeah, totally. And he's like, "Well, I, I guess that I, I don't know. I just write what I like and what sounds good. I like sounds and <laughs> not helpful." But it was the break, and so. Uh, people were going to the, the men's room. So I went into the men's room and I stood at the urinal next to George Crumb. <laughs> and I was thinking, here I am. What a surreal experience standing next to George Crumb, Pulitzer Prize, famous composer. Here we are in the University of Pennsylvania bathroom. <laughs> like, wow. Okay, well, that's it for this <laughs> week of hearing the Pulitzers. <laughs> How do you go on from that story? Do you have any experiences like that, Andrew? (laughs) I've never been in a bathroom with George Crumb. I've actually never met George Crumb. Mm. Uh, But I have a similar experience from an undergraduate. It wasn't Black Angels. It was the macrocosmos. Oh, yeah. So I was uh, halfway through my undergraduate. I got really into avant-garde and weird. I was a piano major. And I really wanted to play all this weird piano music. And so my piano instructor said, you should look at the macrocosmos. Yeah. So I pulled it out and uh, we should link to it on our webpage because the 
pictures, the way he wrote the score is absolutely beautiful. All his with, scores are so beautifully graphic. And that one has circles and has the famous, the number 12 is the famous spiral galaxy. It's written oh, yeah. in a spiral, which is absolutely uh, just breathtaking. And so just from looking at it, I was kind of transported and then beginning to work on it and play and coax those sounds from the piano, which up until that point kind of in my life, it had been, you know, it was verboten. You don't go inside the piano. You don't put things on the string of the piano. So to have that kind of sound world opened up was, that really has kind of helped me on the path towards being interested in the avant-garde and ultimately, you know, doing research and publishing on it. Yeah. And he's such a fascinating composer for a lot of reasons in, in that those pieces uh, and other ones, quoting, he's always, mm -hmm. I think maybe that's not a very American thing to do, but to quote from the past and use it in some distorted way. And it's kind of this blend of avant-garde and nostalgic and, you know, death and the maiden for black angels or uh, in microcosmos. There's a... Oh, the DSE Ray. Yeah, the DSE Ray. Ray yeah. And there's a Chopin. One has a Chopin nocturne or something, mm -hmm. and it's just very distant and the space I think yeah. well this piece is part of that is kind of talking about space and time and the going the timbral dimension is really important and I'm not sure we've we've, we've seen it in some of our previous composers in fact the last couple we talked about timbre but not like this not like this yeah well maybe we should talk a little bit about the the story behind and what was going on that would make this piece be a winner of the Pulitzer Prize Telling the story. All right, so George Crumb represents a continuation of the trend we've seen of non-East Coast Ivy League composers winning this award. So here is a composer from West Virginia. Could he be the only Pulitzer winner from West Virginia? He may be the only Pulitzer yeah. winner from West Virginia. <laughs> he goes to our alma mater, the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign, mm -hmm. goes to Michigan, to get with his our DNA. friend Leslie Bassett. Yeah, Leslie Bassett. Uh, both of them studied with Ross Lee Finney. So we see that kind of connection that we saw with Leslie Bassett just a, you mm. know, two episodes ago. Um, but spent most of his life, like you just mentioned, at the University of Pennsylvania teaching. So very different of a background than what we've seen for the first 20 years at the Pulitzer Prize. I mean, I think we're really seeing 65 was a watershed year in terms of what the Pulitzer was going to honor. Mm-hmm. And thinking, so 1968, our previous winner was the first one that had electronic sounds in it and that was kind of a, in a new new thing mm -hmm. this piece also you know, thinking about the avant-garde in the late 60s uh it, i don't think it was quite as uh difficult well like it was more listener friendly probably mm -hmm. or at least trying to reach out a little bit more instead of the previous thinking of just the Babbitts and Carters and serialists here. Well, and go back when you said they brought George Rockberg and George Crumb. To me, they both stand in my mind as these composers in the 60s who look at the landscape and go, well, where's expression? Where's self-expression? Mm. And so I think we were going to see that. Rockberg coming from kind of serial yeah, language very... into becoming a very neo-romantic. But I mean, George Crumb, very avant-garde, but very expressive and very personally expressive. So it's not, oh, I'm in love with you. It's, <laughs> here are my obsessions and I'm going to share them with you in the music. Mm -hmm. But that whole idea of using the avant-garde to bring in new sounds, new ideas, new ways of expression, I think was really new in the late 1960s. Mm -hmm. And it, this piece is also notable for a kind of a difference in his sound too. Mm -hmm. I don't know a lot of his earlier work, so do you know some of his early... I know a little bit of his early music, yeah. but really it's 
when you get to the kind of mid-60s that you begin to hear the crumb that we now think of. Yes, which is all in this piece. I think. Yeah, this piece, from the very first note, you yes. know, oh, it's George Crumb. <laughs> you know. Such a striking sonic profile. Mm -hmm. So, as we say, written, written 1967-ish, and it was a commission, right? It from was the University, University of Chicago. University of Chicago, right. Uh, and then eventually premiered by the Chicago Symphony. We'll talk about that later, but that's already so different in a way, in which it's not an Eastern orchestra, it's not an Eastern group. Here's a classic Midwestern right. orchestra, one of the great ones, but a very different kind of place. And this piece, it's funny thing, you know, the ones after it are performed much more. Yeah. I, this one's actually kind of obscure in some weird ways. I had never heard this before we got ready to no. prepare for this podcast. Whereas Ancient Voices of Children, Black oh, Angels, no. I mean, those are literally in the textbooks that yes. we teach from. Yeah. They're, they're kind of cornerstone repertoire, but they all come from 1970, right? Those two pieces are after True. this piece. So in some ways, this is kind of the Pulitzer pushed George Crumb into the space where everyone knew about him and I think kind of laid the groundwork for those two pieces to really take off. Mm -hmm. And in terms of the, the influence, uh, I'm thinking of another 68 piece was the Barrio Sinfonia. Oh, Sinfonia, yeah. Yeah, and that... that do you feel hear any similarities or well there's the same kind of i mean mixed media for lack of yeah. a better term but using voices as well as the instruments asking the instruments to play in different ways mm -hmm. asking um why don't we draw borrow from the past and take these older sounds and bring them into today and let them mix and mingle i mean that's exactly what symphonia is doing mm -hmm. sounding together right that's what that piece is right. all about and this very similar very similar here yeah well should we discuss the musical materials Behind the Notes. All right, so four movements, and I, I it's have a hard very time strange. Telling them apart, you really have to see the score to see where the movements yes. kind of stop and start. Um, but I think you can already get a sense of this idea of expression just in the titles of those oh, movements. Yeah. So Echoes of Time in the River, the first movement is Frozen Time, second is Remembrance of Time, Collapse of Time, and Last Echoes of Time. It's almost like this piece has is about aspects of time and music. It is exactly about aspects of time and music. But that Frozen Time, I mean, that's, uh, that's the sound. So Oh, that first antique symbol right at the beginning, which I think you have a record, uh, clip of. Yeah, I thought we would listen a little bit to that opening and hear the the bells, that kind of crystalline, mm -hmm. clear, crystalline, yeah, that, that sound is so crumb. But then uh, we're going to listen to about two minutes into it because you'll also begin to hear another key feature of George Crumb that I think you're going to enjoy. So this is the my favorite part is that Crumb often would thread in lyrics, but he didn't want them to be readily available to you just as a listener that you would know. But this is fantastic because it goes back to his West Virginia roots. They're actually chanting the the motto of his home state of West Virginia, Montani Semper Libre, 
Mountain, mountaineers are always free. <laughs> and it's in a contrapuntal kind of Which way. Which is, too. I thought of you. I love it. I love it. It's great. But this chanting, I mean, I can't think of a, a crumb piece that doesn't have at some point the musicians putting their instruments down yes. and chanting, usually in a, in a forced whisper, <laughs> right? That's, that's sound. <laughs> so combine that with the antique symbols and it's, oh. it's ancient voices of children. It's, it is. You know, the same thing in Black Angels. They, yeah. Except there, they're doing eins, zwei, drei, right? All that. <laughs> Very recognizable. Yeah, it is. Uh, and also, there's some text from Garcia Lorca, another one who he that was his his kind of house poet. Yeah, and it's an obsession of his obsession, in some ways. Yeah, so he wrote a lot of pieces based on Garcia Lorca's poems, uh, all the the classic kinds of things. But what I find a little different about this one, and one of the in our, our show notes here. Uh, you found something mentioning Berez, yeah. and I really heard that Berez. There, it's not just sound. There are actually melodies and recurring yes. themes and ideas, but there's it's something that just struck me as sounding from integrals or mm -hmm. one of those ba -da -pa -pa, ba -pa 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 kind of things from a, a woodwind lick. Yeah, and this is to me. I think about those Verez pieces that use full orchestra because I don't typically think of Crumb as a full orchestra guy. No. I think of him as a chamber guy. Mm -hmm. So this full orchestra and using the sounds of the full orchestra, and he doesn't for most of the piece. It's really not until about the third movement that you finally get the full orchestra coming in yeah. and playing. He just yeah. uses subsets. But those licks, you're exactly right. And the way that he constructs like these like modules of music that kind of float, and then it's almost like we were talking about space. It's like they interact with other modules, right. which to me is a very Verez kind of thing. Verez talked about them as sound masses. Mm. that you have a sound mass that includes the timbre and the melody and the harmony, whatever you're putting in there, and that they interact with each other in the space, that it's not a flat plane of music, it's this huge space of music. And that's I hear that too, mm -hmm. very clearly. Well, I wonder about the visual aspect of this piece, because speaking of space, he talks about wanting the performers to process in and out and off stage and gives rhythms for their steps. Uh, which is amazing. Which is really cool. But it, you wouldn't notice that if, if you were, well, you, you would hear it, but you wouldn't see it. And so there's, there's always a visual aspect, but obviously black angels, ancient voices of children. I'd go beyond just ritual, uh, visual and say it's a ritualistic aspect. Ritual, yeah, that's, and he, that's good. he subtitles this for processionals. So he really intends for the musicians mm -hmm. to walk on and off stage, mm -hmm. which... I mean, come on, is the Chicago <laughs> Symphony Orchestra, no. union musicians going to get up and walk on and off? And they didn't. Mm -hmm. In the first performances, this didn't happen. So it was uh, an aspirational thing on the part of Crumb, I think because he was just so new. Who's going yeah. to do this? This young whippersnapper <laughs> composer coming and telling them they're going to be walking off. But at the end, he wanted, it was kind of like a farewell symphony. He wanted everyone to process off and the final kind of whispering, whistling actually, to be oh, right. off stage. He wanted that to be off stage which makes even more the sense of space to just mm. use the physical space of the theater. Mm -hmm. And the echoes, the whole thing about echoes, hearing spatially, uh, musically. Uh, I, I, like I said earlier, I have a hard time distinguishing the sections. It, it all seems like one big 18-minute work. It does. Uh, but within that, there are certain... The way he plays with time, I think, is fascinating. You, mm -hmm. it, it's never boring. It's For no. me, compared to some of our previous ones that were tough to get through, I really enjoyed hearing this more and more because it wasn't boring and there was so much contrast and sound and timbre that form is not a, not really the issue here. It's, but I think back to yeah, it's you know, the Leslie Bassett yeah. that we listened to two episodes ago, which was all about timbre just like this yeah. is. 
and was clearly expertly constructed, but not a construction that you can hear. In this piece, you can hear it. Mm -hmm. So you can hear the, I mean, his motives are small enough that you can hear them when they return. Oh, yeah. And when you get to the end, I mean, since it's only 18 minutes, you recognize that the musical material at the beginning recurs at the end, this kind of cyclical thing that he liked very much. Mm -hmm. But you can hear when those kind of things recur regularly. And I think that helps move you through the sounds that you're hearing because it's these short little musical motives. And they're usually even symmetrical, so your brain just kind of oh, latches yeah. onto them. Yeah, which is why Crumb works very well for a theorist to analyze. Of course he does. He, he's into all these I said games. 0, 1, 3, 4. No, exactly, exactly. He does actually use a lot of these recurring sets and loves symmetrical types of sets and things. So it all fits. It's all part of the same compositional strategy here. Well, the other thing I like about him and about this piece is that he uses moments where he cedes control. This is very kind of John Cage, mm -hmm. avant-garde thing, but he cedes control to the players. So there are moments where he literally has circle music, and he says, here are these sections, and you play them kind of in this order, but the musicians move through it. And so he has three circles happening at one time, and it creates this interesting kind of cacophony. And to me, that's kind of the Verez sound. Yeah. So yeah. I wanted to play one other section. Uh, this is about seven, eight minutes in, so it's in the second movement. This is where you'll hear that circle music, but before that, I really wanted you to hear the water gong, <laughs> which is where you bow a gong and drop it into water, and you can hear the as it as the pitch changes as it goes into the water. It's an amazing, amazing sound. So let's listen a little bit to the second movement. a great sound it that, is. that gong yeah. and then when those clarinets come in and that kind of lick you're absolutely right talking about Verez earlier that's oh. that's what I hear mm -hmm. yeah so it's kind of a do you think and maybe in a way this is a transitional piece for Crumb or it's maybe his first fully mature work in the way that we know him now yeah a lot of his earlier the, the pieces I'm thinking of earlier were piano work so this yeah. is a, a broader palette but even for me it doesn't sound like you know, when you say orchestra, I have a, a, a sound in mind. This doesn't sound like an orchestra. No, I didn't even know it was for orchestra until you, I looked at the score. If you're not told, there's no way you're going to know. No. It's so unique and, and so much. This other thing about uh, the ritualistic aspect is there's so much silence and there's so much quiet in a crumb piece mm -hmm. that you really have to kind of lean in to, to catch it all. Yeah, and to hear it a lot of times because it's just so soft and just yeah, very small gestures. So. Yeah, it's it's good. It's good. So maybe we should uh, see what other people thought of it. I, I have a feeling we're gonna like it, but we'll we'll see what other people thought. Hit or miss. Well, the first performance of the piece, as we said, was the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. 
It was in 1967, and it was this actually started the concert. So how about this for a concert? This, this began the concert then, Mosaic for Grand Orchestra by Donald Martino, and then break, uh, intermission, Symphony by Irving Fine. Wow. That's a pretty uh, demanding. That was the entire program. That was the entire program. No, no. No Beethoven or Brahms. No, no Beethoven or Brahms on this one. So. What can you imagine starting it with the, that antique it, symbol just it's dinging? A great it's a great opening. opener. Exactly. And I want to see if you catch this. There's a little a dig here, uh, not against Crumb, but against the, the process. But the jury, our friend Robert Ward, previous winner, was the chair. And so he describes this as. A Echoes of Time in the River is a highly evocative piece, utilizing many of the recently developed techniques in a sensitive and original way. The sound world of sound that George Crumb creates in this piece is consistent and a fresh extension of an impressionistic timbre. Okay, so it was Robert Ward, Norman Della Gioio, previous winner, and Vincent Persichetti. Then Supplement, March 29th, 1968, he says, uh, it was good, oh, <laughs> the general level of submissions this year was very good, and happily the list was totally uncluttered by any real junk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then he says, the other winners, or the, the finalists, Benjamin Lee's Piano Concerto Number no. 1. Never heard that. Nope. Alvin Etler's Concerto for Brass Quintet. Again. Yep. Total blank. And String Orchestra, Alvin Etler's String Orchestra and Percussion. Alvin Etler had two. Two. Never heard of Alvin Never. <laughs> no. So he talks again about how really laudatory towards Crumb, but you'll like this line. Personally, I am pleased that in the past three years we have found distinguished works which are by superb craftsmen who reflect the most recent developments in the field of music. Why would he say the I past don't know three why years? Like, hmm. This is fascinating, just yeah. to watch this history unfold uh, year by year as we're doing this. The yeah. 1965, the, the fact that they didn't listen to the warning to give Duke Ellington, it seems like the, the juries have gotten, you know, they're so they're, they're feeling their oats. They're, they're getting out there. They right? really are. <laughs> I mean, that, that little yeah. dig that they're giving, that's really unusual. We would not have seen under Chalmers Clifton, oh, no. any of this kind of no sass. Way. <laughs> no way. They wouldn't be calling it junk. Works of junk. No. <laughs> well, evidently, as much as the Pulitzer jury uh, appreciated the piece, the musicians did not. Mm, imagine that. So evidently, it was performed only twice <laughs> under oh. great protest by the university, by the um, Chicago Symphony Orchestra. Uh, but I found a fascinating article right after the award was given, the Pulitzer was given to Crumb by uh, Donald Hennehan in the New York Times. And he was talking about these new pieces that were marrying the avant-garde and mm. kind of new expression like we were talking about earlier. So this is what he said about Crumb. He said, Crumb, who teaches composition at the University of Pennsylvania, requires of orchestra members that they not only play their instrument in outlandish ways, oh, a, percussionist, a percussionist lowers a gong into a bucket of water, for instance, to bend the pitch slightly. But to chant meaningless phrases in unison, which we know it's not meaningless. No, it's not meaningless. Mountaineers are always West free. Virginia. <laughs> to whistle in chords and to march about in ritualistic processionals. All this, of course, veers far off the symphonic music path and merges with pure theater. Few orchestras would be willing to put such fare before their old subscribers when a Brahms-Beethoven program can be rehearsed and presented with one-tenth the effort and cost and ten times the chance of acceptance. 
In fact, Crumb's only real audience, like that of so many others restless academics these days, waits outside halls where music is treated like a Ming vase, mm. to be put under a glass bell and admired once or twice a week in reverential surroundings. Wow. Has anything changed? Nothing's that... changed. But what's amazing to me is Crumb is inspiring this kind of devotion. Yeah. Such an avant-garde composer and so embraced and so quickly. Yes. It's really remarkable to me. Hmm. He had a big, fast, meteoric rise in a way. He did. Yeah. I, I don't know. I'm just so put off by that comment there. Why are we doing this? We could just put a Brahms and Beethoven symphony for a tenth of the effort and cost and the acceptance. And well, I guess I'm not surprised. You're not surprised. I'm not surprised, but even nothing has changed in 50 years. No, it hasn't really changed. But I don't remember some of the other winners getting this. Like Elliot Carter, for example, I think much more difficult mm -hmm. for an audience to listen to. Got rave reviews, right. whereas this piece is. You know, maybe it's the symphony orchestra. I think that has a lot to do with it. Yeah. And, but I don't think anything would have won a Pulitzer Prize except for a symphony orchestra. Yeah, yeah. So we'll see what happens in 1970 if those two important pieces, Black Angels and yeah. Angel Voices of Children, were even considered by the Pulitzer that year. I'll be very curious. I mean, look at that committee, though. Robert Ward, Norman Della Gioia, and Vincent Persichetti, not avant-garde composers. But all composers. And but, I think that's one of the ah, things that we're yeah. seeing here. As in the past, we've seen conductors, mm -hmm. cultural critics, and this is the one of the first juries we've seen that's really of composers and focused on past winners. Yes. So it's a different true. makeup even of the, the jury than we've seen before. So that might have a little something to do with it. Hmm. Well, I think I know, Dave, <laughs> but is this a hit or a miss for you? Oh, definitely a hit. Yeah, this was a, a nice... Uh, we've talked about it and how some of the pieces we've been really excited to learn about through our 26 episodes so far, uh, to find pieces we'd never heard and become real favorites. This is one I knew the composer, certainly, but not the piece, and I'm, I'm really glad to have learned it. So uh, definitely a hit. How about for you? Oh, absolutely the same. Yeah. <laughs> and it's fascinating how much I felt like I knew it, just yeah. because I know other pieces of Crumb, uh, but there were sounds and kind of timbres that I wasn't expecting that just were absolutely beautiful and breathtaking. So I agree with you. That's one of those that I was listening to and I kind of couldn't stop listening. Yeah. I, I just kind of put it on and let, let it keep going because uh, there was always something new to discover. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, that's it for this episode of Hearing the Pulitzers. And as always, you can find more about this project at our website, hearingthepulitzers.com, where you'll also find links in a short bibliography where you can read more about George Crumb. Also follow us on Facebook and Twitter, at H Pulitzers, for links between episodes. Finally, join us next episode where we explore the Pulitzer Prize winning third string quartet by Czech-born composer Karl Husa. Until then, keep listening. <laughs>